There's no doubt that the old politics of the two-party system is now gone and over. I don't need lectures from you or anybody on the Sinn Féin side of the house. We're very reluctant to kind of say what's red lines, but, but we do have to take climate seriously. There's going to be constant criticism, there's going to be a lot of disappointment, and whoever goes into government is going to be unpopular. Hello and welcome to the Your Politics podcast from RTE News. I'm Sandra Hurley and I'm joined by the Minister for Children, Equality, Disability, Integration and Youth, Roderick O'Gorman, as well as our political correspondent, Paul Cunningham. Minister, welcome. So, last weekend, restrictions were lifted at uh, 6 a.m. on Saturday. Did you do anything unusual over the weekend, anything that had been forbidden up until then? Uh, thanks, Sandra. Uh, well, myself and uh, my other half went out. It was his uh, his birthday on the Sunday. So uh, we went out and uh, had a meal out. And then I, I'd, as a treat, booked a, booked a night in a hotel. So, um, yeah, that was that was nice. That, it was nice to be able to do that. We were in, in the city, so it was lovely to see the buzz around the place and people uh, getting getting back to a bit of normality. And uh, hopefully now that, that, that can continue. I, I, even all week I've noticed kind of, I think people are just in better form um, and uh, feel they can, you know, maybe start to plan for the next few months and uh, get, getting 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 life back to normal. How about you, Paul? Did you get up to anything last weekend uh, now that you had the go-ahead from the government? Not at all. I'm so old now that um, I don't do any <laughs> of that type of stuff. I stayed at home and watched the young kids on the telly and said, isn't it great for them? Yeah, yeah. Just a standard weekend at home with the streaming service or whatever you're watching on television for most of us, I'm afraid. Living, vic- living vicariously. Living <laughs> yes. vicariously through others. yes. So, Minister, we want to look over, uh, obviously, some of uh, your uh, portfolio. Uh, you've been in the role now the, for 18 months, and it's a really big portfolio. I mentioned uh, it earlier, and you've many live issues that you've had to deal with, mother and baby homes, direct provision. You've got a massive, ambitious childcare programme. Did you take on a lot, do you think, to try and get that done within the space of a few years? Well, look, um, when you get the opportunity uh, to, to serve as a minister, uh, I suppose you, you you have to take that chance and and, and give it your all and try and uh, have a, have a broad ambition in terms of what you want to achieve, be it legislation, be it policy change, be it uh, financial investment, like we're 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 seeking to achieve in childcare. So you know we have um, it's it's a it's a wide department. We have an ambitious agenda, um, but we're working really hard to deliver on that. And you know last week I was in the Oireachtas bringing forward the information and tracing bill piece of legislation that uh, has you know been waiting to be addressed for about 20 years in last in in this year's budget we've had a very successful uh, investment in childcare and you know I think there's agreement among all three parties that we want to continue that into budget 2023 and of course you know a, a key priority for myself and for the green party the ending of direct provision we set out the white paper you know almost almost a year ago we'll be bringing forward a, a clear implementation uh, update uh, on the, the the one year anniversary of of the white paper a meeting actually with uh, about 20 of the NGOs uh, later on this afternoon to discuss with them our, our, our progress. So look, I, look, I, I think it's important to be ambitious, uh, uh, but I think we are uh, achieving targets. We're, we're making change and, and that's you know the reason myself and my party went into government. Um, on the mother and baby homes, I suppose you hit a lot of controversies there early on in your term. There was the records controversy, then there was a lot of unhappiness with the report when it came out last January then the redress scheme. Were you surprised with how much it seemed to dominate the political agenda for your portfolio in those early months? Well, look, the the issues we're dealing with are, are, are deep legacy issues of the, the failure of this state 
over generations um, and the, the hurt, the damage that has been done to, to survivors, to former residents is, is profound. So, look, I, I think there, there can't be any surprise that, that these issues um, cause such, um, a, a kind of generate such a degree of, of, of feeling among the entire population, but particularly among those who were, who were residents, those who survived these institutions and their families, and particularly the long-term impact of being denied access to information and the like is, is absolutely crucial. But I think, you know, across that time, I've been very much focused on trying to bring forward measures that address the issues that survivors have raised over the years. So whether it's issues to do with redress, issues to do with the um, the need to to, to exhume the, the bodies of the, the infants in tomb and give them respectful reburial, or issues to deal with the provision of, of, of information and birth certs to adopted people, people who are who are um, who are whose births were illegally registered. And those are all issues that, that, that we focus on. We've brought forward the initial proposals on redress. We've brought forward the um, the adoption legislation. It's in the Oireachtas now and in in, in February, I'll be bringing forward the the, the legislation on, on the institutional burials to address tomb. So, um, you know, recognise the, the the real depth of feeling on these issues, but actually bringing forward issues to address that. Um, on the uh, the birth and information and tracing legislation, you have found a way legally to overcome this problem that's been there, as you mentioned, for a really long time, and that's striking a balance between the privacy rights of the mother and the child. But many people are still unhappy that they have to go through sort of a, a process where they have to take, I think, a phone call from a social worker. Is there any way of getting around that or do you think that that's reasonable in the circumstances? Mm-hmm. Look, I think first of all, it's important to say very few people would go through that process um, because it is only in a situation where a parent indicated that they uh, didn't want contact from the child they give up to adoption, that that process would would apply. And I think in the vast majority of situations, parents uh, will either indicate that they want contact or they they won't indicate any preference. So there's a contact preference register at the moment. It's non-statutory. 4,500 parents have put down a preference. Only 99 of those have said no contact. So this will only apply in a very small number of situations. But we are talking about two sets of constitutional rights here, as you alluded to. Uh, One is that right to identity, the right of adopted people that the Irish state has ignored for so long. And the other is that right to privacy of of, of the parent, of, of the mother. We are giving primacy to the right to identity. We And I think that there's a complete agreement across the Oireachtas that is an essential right and it's a right that, that we that have been denied to adopted people for too long. But in any process, the other right, the other constitutional right has to be respected. It has to be represented. And the idea we've come across that uh, in a phone call now, and it won't necessarily be a social worker, it'll just be a, a nominated person from, from TUSLA or the Adoption Authority, they'll let the adopted person know the contact preference of the parent and then the full information is issued. And I think that's the key thing because every other piece of legislation, there were small circumstances in which an adopted person might be denied access to their information. There are no such circumstances under this legislation. And that's why it represents such a such a sea change, such a breakthrough compared to, 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 to previous draft bills. Is it possible to ask just about the language in that bill, um, just on the birth info and tracing bill? I, I 
saw a tweet earlier on this month from Holly Kearns of the Social Democrats and she was saying the bill clings to the euphemism of incorrect birth registrations. But let's be very clear, this was not incorrect birth registrations. It was international falsification of birth certs and other documents. It was illegal adoptions. What's your response to that? Yeah, well, look, I, I addressed that issue in, in the, the second stage debate. I've always been very clear there was uh, Ill- illegal registration of births took place in this country. Um, and part of the reason for this bill is to address that. Um, in the draft of the bill, we used the term incorrect because we wanted, this is about drawing a category as wide as possible so as much information can be brought into it. If you had to prove something was illegal, you'd be narrowing the category of information that could be applied. So that's why we use the term incorrect. But I, in, I indicated that we'd look at that particular phrase and we might use something like uh, incorrect or false, incorrect and or false, something like that to broaden out the category to make sure that we're recognising that, uh, that, 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 that false registrations did take place, but also ensure that this category of information that we're providing, because if we draw the category narrow, we're providing people with less information. So that's why we've drawn it as wide as possible and use that broader term, incorrect. You mentioned direct provision earlier and uh, ending direct provision in its current form is a key aim for the Green Party. And you brought out that white paper last year. This year is going to be all about delivery, getting those buildings uh, mm-hmm. up and running, buying uh, various centres. How is that going so far? That 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 seems very difficult in the current uh, housing crisis. I suppose one of the issues is the the type of accommodation we're looking for is not necessarily in co- direct competition with, I suppose, you know, the the three bed semi that so many people, uh, so many you, you know, young people, young couples are lo- are looking for at the moment. We might be looking for larger pieces of of, of accommodation, multi room accommodation, um, but accommodation that can guarantee people their their own room, which is a, is a key element of the uh, of, of of the white paper. Implementation is going well. Um, my department's been working very closely with the housing agents in terms of uh, them giving us advice on the procurement of, of properties, but also advice in terms of the funding streams that we'll need to provide to uh, NGOs, to approved housing bodies, so they can operate and they can start to build uh, accommodation. So it'll be a, a mixture of, of, um, of, of purchase, but also the building of accommodation as well. So the first year has all been very much about putting in place those policies. Uh, and as I say, you're correct, though, 2022 will be about delivery, delivery of the, the first purchase units but also the initiation of, of, of planning applications for both um, both the, the community accommodation, but also the, the phase one accommodation, those, those reception and integration centres. I saw a statistic just from the end of last year that 1,640 people are in direct provision who have the right to leave, but they can't leave because they can't find somewhere to rent. I mean, that really puts it in stark terms that there's people who simply can't get out of the centres because they've nowhere else to go. Yeah, no, and that's a definite issue. Uh, and our, ourselves in the Department of Justice have been working hard uh, with a number of NGOs, particularly DePaul, have been providing a, a, a particular support service to people who were living in direct provision, who've been granted status and are now looking to move on. So DePaul are supporting those to help them locate uh, accommodation uh, across the country. It, it's a it's a real challenge, undoubtedly. But I suppose we are putting in place mechanisms, and I think I think we moved nine hundred out last year. So look, there the, the, there is still that that backlog, but we are moving people out. Um, but that's something that that's going to have to speed up. And I've no doubt that as the housing for all program 
kicks in as we see more units of accommodation delivered across the country of all sorts of accommodation through housing for all it's going to give greater opportunities for us to move people out of direct provision centres where they have status. And one thing, uh, another thing you announced this week was a big project involving children in care and in particular looking back at their outcomes after they've left. There's been a lot of criticism about of the level of aftercare for children and we've seen some real tragic outcomes in the past. Tell me, how are you going to conduct that? Yeah, I think it's a, it's actually quite an, quite an exciting project uh, and some much needed research in, in a, into a group of young people who probably don't get as much focus as they deserve. We have about uh, 6,000 young people in care at the moment. Vast majority, 93% are, are in foster care and, and others would, would be in resi- residential care. About 500 of them leave care every year. So we're doing a longitudinal survey. So that basically means looking at a group, I think we'll start around 16 just before they leave care and look at them over a 10-year period to, to a, a, a kind of uh, assess their life, their experience and particularly their outcomes as well. And we can use that information then to kind of shape government policy. Uh, as you know, a number of years ago, an aftercare service was was brought in. So uh, a support for young people from the ages of 18 to, to 21 or 23. Uh, and this will help us assess, is that delivering? Is that giving the outcomes? Is it giving the, the, the proper supports to uh, to young people uh, as they leave care? And I know, you know, groups like Epic who are, who, are, who support uh, young people in care, they've, they've recognised this is something they've been looking for for years, this longitudinal survey. It was actually a recommendation of the Ryan report, the report into institutional abuse from 2009. So, you know, where we are 14 years later. But look, it's it's good to finally get a, a, that, that really important research up and running. So you're a year and a half into your portfolio and... Everyone's looking ahead towards the end of this year when there's going to be this big change in government when Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are going to swap over the Taoiseach and Tánis, the um, roles. Do you expect that the Green Party would have a sort of a reshuffle within the government and could you be allocated to a different portfolio? Well, look, th- that all will d- depend on, 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 I suppose, on, on the leader and, and, and the wider party. Um, but I have, uh, there's a huge amount of work to do in my department uh, I'm really passionate about doing it. It's, it's, I suppose, from my own interests. It, it's, a, it absolutely mirrors m- my own interest in, in, in law, in, in, in policy, and, and reform. So I, I'd love the opportunity to, to continue on in there. Um, but obviously, that'll be the, a call for the party leader and, and the party executive. That sounded like a pitch for the job, Sandra. It did certainly. Yeah. Um, well, um, no shame in, in saying that. No, I'd, I'd love to keep on, on on this on this role. Yeah. And Paul, can I just get your view on this? Uh, we're going to be talking a lot in 2022 about this swap in December. How do you, what do you think that will mean for the Greens? That change in government. Um, I think to a certain extent, um, out of the three parties in the coalition, the change is going to have the least impact. Um, I think it's unlikely that there's going to be portfolio change. We just heard from Roger Gorman about what he's learning as minister, the idea of then having to bring in someone new and have to relearn that in in the second half of the coalition's tenure, I think would be um, a cardinal sin. So I think it's far more likely that they're going to... um, just be sitting by as we um, watch Leo Varadkar become Taoiseach. He certainly indicated there's going to be a reshuffle within his government, so let's see what he wants to do. And then probably most interestingly of all, it's the great game within Fianna Fáil. Is Micheál Martin, um, once his time is up as Taoiseach, going to stand down as leader? Or does he decide he wants to tough it out? Or does he decide he's going to become kingmaker, assist someone else to become leader of Fianna Fáil, and maybe he remain in cabinet? I think the focus will be on Fianna Fáil, particularly from September on. And uh, Minister, 
I found a quote from you uh, when I was researching for this interview. So this is from 2015. I know politicians love to be reminded of things they said <laughs> several years ago. So uh, in 2015, you had been a councillor for one year and you said that the mistake in 2007 was that the Greens in government were what you called the invited guests. Bertie Ahern had a Fianna Fáil majority with the PDs and the independents. The Greens were kind of bolted on. And you said from a political tactics point of view, going in without being able to pull down the government was the biggest mistake straight away. Is that the big difference this time round for the Greens in government? You have 12 TDs. There's much. There's more power there. Yeah, I, I think, you know, um, you know, raw political power is, is, is definitely an element of it. Um, I think we have a programme for government that is far more clearly a Green Party document that the, the evidence of the Green Party's, um, I suppose, our fingerprints are much more over this programme for government than they were the last one. And the last programme for government, a lot of the commitments were review this, do a study on this, um, consider this. Whereas in this programme for government, it was pass this legislation, pass this legislation. And we've done a lot of that already. Certainly in Eamon's department, he's delivered on the Climate Action, uh, the Climate Action Act, the, uh, the Climate Action Plan. Um, you know, key pieces of legislation are already being delivered. We see Catherine like working on, on, on key programmes like the, um, the, the basic income for artists. So we are we're, we're delivering already, whereas in the, the initial government after our, our, our two years in, we were really just kind of getting agreements that we might do various things. So I think I, I think that's really been important. But I also think the working relationships among the three parties are, are generally good. And my sense are is that they're probably better than they were in, uh, in, in the 2007 to, to 2011 government. And I think the, the work we had to do back then to convince, as it was then Fianna Fáil, about the importance of environmental issues, we don't need to do that work now. Like I, I, I recognise, particularly the Taoiseach very clearly sees the need to to, to take action on on the climate crisis. You, you hear him speak about it very regularly at cabinet, at, at public events. So I suppose it's it, when when you're working with people who are you know broadly going in the same direction, it certainly makes things a, a, a lot easier and, and allows for delivery um, much more effectively. It certainly sounds, um, uh, Minister, that things have changed. And indeed, we had Christo O'Sullivan of Fianna Fáil in the podcast uh, studio a short time ago and we were putting into him that he was more green than the Greens. And you can see that um, change between what happened all the way back in 2007 and what happened today. I remember being in the Mansion Hall on the day when that fateful decision was taken to go into government. Um, Sandra was just reminding you of what you said in 2015. What way did you vote in 2007? I voted to go in. Um, it was, uh, you know, I, I anguished about it uh, that, uh, that, that uh, over that week. But uh, no, I voted to go in, uh, and I voted to stay in in, in two thousand and nine. Um, and uh, look, you know, we, we've all worked through the consequences of of, of the decisions we, we took yeah. in the past. Um, uh, uh, wipe out in in, in twenty eleven, but uh, came together and and and, uh, and rebuilt the party. And, and I think look that that's been important even within the party over over the the, the last number of months. And I think particularly since the doll resumed last September, uh, I think look there's no secret there's been there's been tensions in the party in, in during our first year in, in government. But I think you but know how about that? How are the relations now within the party? Because last year there seemed to be a big split between there was sort of a Eamon Ryan faction and a Catherine Martin faction. Well, look, I think there was a, a division between those who felt we were right to go into government and those who felt it was a mistake. Um, I think relations are, are far better in the party right now. Um, and I think um, 
we've been able to to unite around one thing, and that's that's policy. Because at the end of the day, you know, all the green TDs, senators, we're all nerds. We love policy. We love being in there, having the opportunity to shape laws, to 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 improve policy. Uh, whether it's whether it's at cabinet, whether it's in departments, whether it's in committees, whether it's in the on, on the floor of the house, uh, working on on legislation, and we are seeing delivery of uh, of, of key uh, of key key priorities. So look, you know, there's there's um, you know, it, it, we're a small party. A very divisive issue came up, and and that's always hard. But people are working well together uh, on advancing green policies across all parts ask, of the parliamentary party. Could I ask the minister just one question? If there was, a, I think you're right. It does seem to have calmed down within the Green Party, but maybe the relationships between the Greens and Fine Gael is a sticky part of this coalition. We had Charlie Flanagan um, going on Twitter today to rebuke Eamon Ryan over his suggestion of um, the development of Carl Brewer Barracks um, just a, a couple of weeks. Ago, we had um, Patrick O'Donovan, the Minister of State, in having a go at Brian Lennon, um, or Ledden, excuse me. How are things going between the Greens and Fine Gael? Look, look, there's there's always going to be tensions in, in a coalition government, and there remain uh, policy issues of tensions between ourselves and Fine Gael, and between ourselves and 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 Fianna Fáil, uh, and and that will remain the way the the, the whole way tr- through. But um, you know, I, I think there's. The, the the basis of a respectful working relationship there between all three parties and that's really important because when issues do come up and you know uh you know there's a there's a mech there are mechanisms there to address them and and and, and try and sort them out and, and and work them through and that's really you know that that that's that's all you can ask for when you've three parties coming from quite different uh, political perspectives working together in a government and last question, Minister, uh, looking ahead to the next election, Sinn Féin have cited the Green Party as a possible coalition partner. It seems likely that they're going to need the numbers if they do end up in poll position, uh, as the polls now indicate. Could you see that happening, the Greens and Sinn Féin, given some of the differences? I'm thinking of carbon tax. Mm-hmm. I, I also hear Sinn Féin are, are looking for all our seats, in, including my own seat, has been has been listed as one of their targets. So I think that's probably the the first concern for me. Will and, they run and, two seats con- in, the, in the four-seater of where you are? Oh, I've no doubt they will. Mm. I've no doubt. And I've no doubt it's my seat that they're they're, yeah. they're, they're going to be targeting. I, w- I was the fourth uh, fourth uh, candidate elected in, in Dublin West. But uh, look, I'll be, I'll be fighting hard in terms of my own record and in terms of the Greens record, both Greens are a record nationally and, and my own record with, uh, of work within the constituency. But look, uh, in terms of, of the question, um, you know, we've always been clear that we don't rule parties out in terms of our engagement after an election. We look to see the results of the election. We look to see the uh, the, the mandate we got. We did engage with, discu- with discussions in Sinn Féin. We were engaged in about uh, three or four days of discussions with Sinn Féin in, in, in April of, of 2020. Um, and look, there are definite issues of, of commonality there on, on, on social policy, but but there are issues in terms of environmental policy, undoubtedly. Uh, you know, issues to do with, with, with carbon tax are, are just one, but the, the kind of... Is that of a deal breaker? Well, look, you know, if the Green Party aren't in, aren't about the environment, you know, what are we about? That's that's why I joined the Green Party and not, so you know, yes. other other parties on the kind of the, the centre left. It's because we have always put the the environment and the need to protect our planet central to politics, and we've made it central to this government. So, so environmental issues are are deal breakers for us, um, uh, but. You know, we we are always open to engaging and in, in, in talking with all parties that are you know w- willing to to I suppose bring issues to the to the table in, in, in an open way. 
Minister Roderick O'Gorman, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Sandra. Thanks, Paul. So I'm still here with uh, Paul Cunningham and I wanted to ask you, uh, Paul, about the Minister for Defence, Simon Coveney. He told the uh, parliamentary party meeting last night that a meeting between the Russian ambassador and the chief of staff of the Defence Forces was ill-judged. Was it also an ill-judged comment on the part of the minister, do you think? I mean, it's interesting. I mean, the first thing we have to say in all of this is that the meeting which took place um, between Fine Gael TDs, MEPs and senators was a private meeting. So um, it wasn't that I was sitting there with my popcorn watching them um, uh, entertain this topic. Instead, it was something that came from sources afterwards. And what we heard was that uh, Simon Coveney, the Minister for Defence as well as Foreign Affairs, had been asked a direct question, what did you think of uh, the head of the Defence Forces meeting the Russian ambassador? And he said, we believe that he was surprised um, at the timing, surprised that there was a tweet of the event and that he felt, given the rising tension in Ukraine, that it was also ill-judged. So that seemed to come across as something of a rebuke. That wasn't um, the words that Simon Coveney used, but that was how it was interpreted because those private meetings aren't actually private at all. And as soon as the doors open, then um, individual members thankfully um, talk to us about what went on. So very quickly, that was sort of hit the newsstands around 9.30 last night. And then by 10.30 this morning, um, he was, that's the minister, was in full retreat mode. He had um, total belief and support in the judgment of the um, uh, chief of staff. He um, also, and once again, he didn't use the word apologies, but was effectively acknowledging that he was responsible for bringing this into the uh, media and political re- uh, realm. And that wasn't something that he wanted to do. And he wanted to put it on record. He also threw in a nice little nugget that he'd also had a bit of a chat with the chief of staff last night. And so that would have been a very interesting conversation um, uh, to learn more about. He hasn't had a great week, really. Uh, the Women of Honour group walking out of this uh, meeting earlier this week on top of some of the other controversies, that party in the, the Department of Foreign Affairs. Is he becoming kind of accident prone and just his deft handling that he may have had in the past? It's not in place at the moment. Yeah, I think... Um Certainly questions are being asked about his judgment and that's happening within his party as well as on opposition benches. Um, if you take them sort of one by one, the question of the um, women of honour, um, it has to be said that there were several different groups who were involved, both um, groups representative of uh, people in the army, other uh, groups which represent some of the people who have made allegations of sexual um, harassment and bullying and that it was one entity which walked out. But nonetheless, that is a significant issue and the manner in which they, A, walked out B said it was a complete waste of time uh, C trashed Simon Coveney and said we're going to go above his head and go to the Taoiseach that's never good for any particular minister and it also happened as you mentioned in the same week that under freedom of information we received more, received more information about how the Secretary General uh, the then Secretary General is now the Ambassador to France um, in the Department of Foreign Affairs said um, he was happy that was the word that was used that there would be a gathering on when the Security Council or when the General Assembly was voting on who should be the next members of the Security Council so it has been a difficult week I think from what comes into question, I guess, is that if you look at, say, just the party issue, uh, Simon Coveney knew very little about that gathering or the decisions of the Secretary General, but his handling of, of the issue after it was made public most certainly did raise questions about his judgment. I also want to ask you about the, we finally found out that the um, top civil servant in the Department of Health, Robert Watt, is now drawing down his full salary, this nearly €295,000. 
it's really come at an embarrassing time for the government because there's so much focus at the moment on the cost of living, yet the government, the three-party leaders, sanctioned the pay increase, which at the time was a pay increase of €81,000. How do you think all that looks for the government now? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting all this week um, as politics shifted from COVID back to ordinary um, issues, the ordinary bread and butter of politics was whether or not Mr. Watt um, was taking the full salary um, because he'd waived his rights to an €81,000 increase. Um, and I think it was Senator Maloney of the Irish Independent was putting um, Tánis de of Radcar under the cosh when he was announcing this question of right to request to work at home. Senator was saying, what about this 81,000? That's twice the working wage. And um, he came back at him several times, as did other journalists. And Mr. Varadkar stuck to his guns that um, basically under GDPR, it wasn't possible for him to make um, his opinion known. It was a private matter for the Secretary General and we'd have to direct any questions to him. But while he adopted that line, um, you had others who weren't uh, uh, staying with him. So you had people like Darrell O'Brien, the Minister for Housing. He felt that there should be transparency. Um, the Minister for Social Protection, Heather Humphreys, she went even further. And a couple of hours after her intervention, um, the Department of Health issued the statement to say, yes, he had actually got it. It was fairly interesting, say, once the issue of Mr. Watt, um, whether or not he's taken the wage, had been clarified, opposition parties shifted the spotlight, as you mentioned, back on to the decision, the decision by the government to allocate that um, cash. So it'll be interesting to see how much more they're able to push on that particular issue, or is it something which has just um, uh, run its race and and will soon be forgotten? Yes, and I think the next question people want answered is uh, from when did he take the pay increase? And that hasn't been clarified yet. So a last question, uh, Paul. Yesterday in on Leaders' Questions, it got very personal between Michal Martin, the Taoiseach, and the Sinn Féin leader, Mary Lou MacDonald. Um, how, who wins in an argument like that? Do you think the government is managing to land back any punches on Sinn Féin? Because Sinn Féin seem to be uh, consistently going after the government that they're out of touch, that they are, uh, they, you know, they're running in all this stuff about, um, uh, you know, the, the increases in pay uh, and being essentially out of touch with, with real people. I think sometimes when it gets personal, um, it can be a disaster for the person who makes it so. And yet, on the other hand, we have had examples where um, people have been talking about it. Take, for example, the Healy Rays and we're having a go at Labour Party and how they weren't looking after um, the working man. And Duncan Smith, the party whip, gave some retort of about two minutes where he basically spoke about how he had been the son of a carpenter who had um, been hanging doors in in Finglas to try and put bread on the table. And then he turned around at the Healy Rays talking about how rich they were, walking past all of their machinery, counting all of their millions. And it was a, a, a quick fire response um, which worked for Duncan Smith. In this particular case, you could see that um, the Taoiseach Michal Martin was getting irked, by, I think, by the tone um, of the leader of the opposition, Mary Lou MacDonald, where she was repeatedly saying, you don't get it. Let me spell it out for you. And the implication was that he either was too stupid to understand it or was too far removed to understand what was going on on the ground among ordinary people. And Michal Martin Martin is very proud of his roots, of his working class roots, decided to have a pop. I'm not sure um, to what extent if there was a winner or a loser on it, but I certainly believe that from Fianna Fáil's perspective, they are going to challenge the narrative that Sinn Féin has been very successful in promoting, which is that the this coalition has adopted the failed policies of the past and that they are not going to be able to deliver for the people. We have to remember that it was the Taoiseach Michal Martin who ensured that Fianna Fáil held that housing brief, just the same as they held the health brief. And it is really up to the party and those two ministers, Stephen Donnelly and Darrell O'Brien, to deliver because in many cases 
whenever the next general election is going to arrive, those two issues will be front and centre. And those ministers have to be able to say, we did deliver for you before people are actually going to vote for Fianna Fáil again. Okay, great. Well, thanks for listening to the Your Politics podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. Goodbye until next week. 